If there was already a crisis simmering in Venezuela, in the past month, it's boiled over. An international tug of war is playing out as countries choose whether to recognize Juan Guaido or Nicolás Maduro as the country's constitutional leader. And some countries are trying to stay out of the fray altogether. Meanwhile, Venezuelans are focused on daily survival. This is Karin Zissis of ASCOA Online. In this episode, my colleague Holly Sunnelin sits down with Guillermo Zubiaga, who heads the ASCOA Venezuela Working Group. They talk about what kind of calculus the Chinese might be thinking through, the generosity of countries like Colombia and Canada, and how millions of Venezuelans just want the misery to end. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Focus. America Latina in Focus. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. I'm here this morning with Guillermo Zubiaga, who is head of the ASCOA Venezuela Working Group. Guillermo, thank you so much for being with us here today. My pleasure. So Venezuela has not been in the news at all this last week. Not at all. (laughs) How are you doing? Great. I mean, trying to keep up with the news and not read any fake news, but it's really hard. Yes, especially when um, most media in Venezuela is shut down. So adds a whole other layer to things. And when, yes, when WhatsApp is like the main vehicle for news. So yes, it Mm -hmm. is hard, but... And so, again, a lot of our listeners are even have fewer resources. So first of all, let's just catch people up on what basically has happened um, just in the last few weeks because a lot of stuff has happened. So, um, so Venezuela has obviously been following deeper and deeper into crisis over the last few years. And opposition leaders with support um, from others have decided that January 10th, which is the start of Maduro's second presidential term, would be the moment to really turn things around. And they're basing this off of Maduro's election to a second term was illegitimate by almost every count. Opposition members were barred. Um, The Congress wasn't consulted on the dates. Their powers were taken away. And a host of other intimidation factors, extortion factors of voters led to this election being fraudulent. So on January 10th, when his second term started, the president of Congress, Juan Guaido, uh, stood at a rally in Caracas and administered the oath of office to himself, which surrounded by a crowd of people also raising their right hands and get taken an oath themselves, which might look incredible, but is actually a process prescribed in the Venezuelan Constitution. Article 233 says that the uh, president of Congress takes over if and when the president is unavailable to serve. And also there are articles that specifically give the right to the people to take back their democracy if they feel that it is being taken away from them. So we saw this happen, um, and then we also saw just this past weekend on February 2nd, there were more marches in Caracas and in uh, Maracaibo and in even tiny towns all over Venezuela. Um, what was going on in those in those marches? I think that was a historic moment in Venezuela. I think we've never seen such a mobilization, as you said, not only in Caracas, but all over the nation in places that had been completely controlled by the Chavismo, not only by the by his by Maduro and Chavez party, but by the state. They were places that had complete and total uh, control of the population through jobs, through uh, intimidation, and people just came out uh, in masses and peacefully. And I think that's something that was interesting beyond the amount of people and and the geographic uh, widespread of the of the of the of the protest was that no one was arrested 
or uh, what that us that usually happens in other in other protests. And I mean, to me, my reading is that the security forces of Maduro are increasingly isolated and it, it becomes increasingly unpopular to to arrest. I think that uh, that's telling, and and I think also the 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 images that we saw, despite the censorship uh, of people coming out, sent a strong message to the international community that. Maduro not only has lost the, his constitutional mandate, but he has also lost uh, the popular mandate. Mm -hmm. And we should add, too, that while February 2nd was largely peaceful, that does not mean that the security forces have been peaceful at all since mm -hmm. this has happened. Since uh, January 22nd, they've increasingly they've been going on raids in poor neighborhoods. Um, they even were giving a warning to poor neighborhoods on the day before Guaido took the oath of office. Um, and then Reuters reports that, let's see, since uh, January 22nd, uh, the Venezuelan Observatory of Violence, which is a local crime monitoring group, attributes 43 deaths to security forces during protests and raids. And then also that uh, authorities have arrested more than 900 protesters since January 21st. And this, of course, is on the backdrop of protests in 2017, which saw over 100 people killed and yeah. hundreds, hundreds more arrested. So there, is, there has been the marches this past weekend were a reassurance, but there has been a lot of tension, too. Absolutely, and I think that that was what was different in the last marches, that we didn't see that level of, you know, intimidation and violence toward protesters. So, you know, a reader, an observer like me will be drawn to the conclusion that security forces are less and less willing to uh, follow orders that means, re uh, that means being violent against uh, an increasing portion of the population that probably includes, you know, their own family members and, you know, neighbors, etc. So, yes, because, you know, while a lot of the generals are very right. inoculated, the lower yes. ranks are right there with everybody else. Yeah. And, and they're not escaping, you know, the, the, the general uh, misery that is created by the hyperinflation and the shortages and, and, and the lack of, of any sort of uh, public service. What did you make of, um, on Monday night, Maduro made veil threats to Juan Guaido, to his security. What did you make of those? I mean, again, it's just more threats. I, I think that, it, you know, even though there are threats, they are unwilling or they don't take the final step of arresting him. Or, I mean, they did arrest him back in early January, but that was, that was very uh, short. So... Again, I think that Guaido has now a level of freedom that no other opposition leader of his magnitude has had in the past. Whenever there was a leader of this level rising like this, the government quickly did something to uh, arrest him or her or limit uh, that leader's exposure and traveling. So it's really remarkable to see how they have kind of like realized that Guaido is some sort of in a way untouchable because of the international community pressure and of course of the popular support that he seems to be uh, to have right now in this moment of transition. And also at this moment that they have a lot, the Maduro regime has a lot more, Correct. less credibility to arrest somebody because they know that they're under so much more pressure. Indeed. Not that they ever had credibility to arrest people, but right. same point. Um, so let's also go then, because there have been a lot of developments with international recognition of Guaido as president. A bunch of European countries gave Maduro until the end of Sunday night to call for new elections. He did not do that. And so on Monday morning, um, I think it was about a dozen countries came out and said that they recognized Guaido as Venezuela's interim president. So what was your take on that? My take, I mean, I think, first of all, I've always said that 
it's uh, we should look at what the hemisphere says i mean what the hemisphere you know the position of the hemisphere and the on the region is and that one is overwhelming of support towards a transition and following the, the constitutional rules yet i'm also shocked by the consensus that there seems to be in europe i know italy was one of the big ones but they have an internal political dynamics within their own governing parties uh, but I think that any person who's, who saw what happened on Monday, the uh, waterfall, the cascade of, of, of recognitions towards Guaido uh, from Europe, I think that was a strong message because they are follow, they said they're following the constitutional path and they're recognizing uh, President Guaido, Guaido as the interim president. So it's very hard for me to see how Europe can back down from that position. and. And also to see countries like Spain, who in the past, I mean, Spain has been, Spain is one of the most important countries in Europe dealing with Venezuela because of trade ties, because of diaspora ties, because of, you know, many Chavista and Madurista leaders have parked their money in Spain. So they do have a lot of leverage. I mean, of course, the United Kingdom, France, et cetera, do as well. But to see uh, Spain so, uh, with so much conviction of what needs to happen, to me was very shocking. Also, we shouldn't forget that, you know, Spain was the first uh, official visitor, uh, Prime Minister Sanchez was the first official visitor to uh, Mexico. So, I mean, they're not seen as a right-wing government in the region. They also, he also went to Cuba recently. So I think that is a, a strong stand from, from Europe and one that generals, top Maduro, uh, officials, et cetera, are definitely noticing. I mean, it's hard not to at this it's point. It's really hard not to, yes. So, and like you mentioned, too, I mean, Europe is responding. Um, they're really following the leadership of the Lima Group, yes. which is a group of 14 countries in the Americas. It is led by Peru. Also, um, Canada has shown a lot of leadership, Colombia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and um, also this weekend, they had meetings in Ottawa on Monday. Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland, she made that point specifically that it actually is in her in her reading of the situation, the constitutional weight is with Guaido. That it is actually harder to to justify constitutionally still backing Maduro because his presidency is so illegitimate at this point, or it's completely illegitimate. I suppose there's not a scale. So, but that and that was her plea to anybody else still considering was that it's a harder to make a case to recognize Maduro right now than it is to look at the Constitution and re realize that Guaido is the clear, legitimate, democratically elected leader. Yeah, and I think this, I mean, these countries are following a path that started in May when they did not recognize the, the election that took place to, you know, elect Maduro. Elections in air quotes. Yeah, elections in air quotes. Uh, so... Uh, this is not something that they suddenly switch their stand or because there is massive. I mean, I, I think that that has added to their conviction of the of the position that they're taking. But if you go back in May, these same countries were also not convinced by the results of the elections that, as you said in the beginning, were not observed, um, banned the biggest parties of the opposition and many other uh, issues that, you know, are we can talk about them. But I just, you know, I like to point that out that there is some sort of continuation in the policy that they've been adopting with Venezuela. And this is what the constitution of Venezuela indicates to do. So 
Uh, I think there is consensus and there is uh, a desire for following the constitutional rule, and I think that's pretty remarkable to see that. Okay, so while we have had all this considerable recognition by different international countries, I think we're up to over 30 countries and bodies recognize Maduro, who are still the big holdouts? Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't call China a holdout, but we have to remember China has been the biggest lender to the, to the 20 years of Chavismo that we have seen. Uh, and they have, of course, very strong ties uh, for many years. I think China, are they, have they lent Venezuela something in the realm of 40 around billion dollars? 40 billion, yeah, or, or 50 or they're all 40. I mean, it's around that. Uh, but it's not chump change. It's not, yeah. it's not. In fact, this is one of China's, Venezuela is one of China's biggest recipients of, of you know, foreign uh, loans and, and it's a very, of, of Chinese investment. So uh, I don't think that China being pragmatic and of being owed this much amount of money is willing to bet that Maduro under this uh, context that he's in right now will be the right person to pay them back the money that they're owed. There also, we know that uh, there is a lot of uh, opposition to the investment that were made in Venezuela and the return that they have, you know, the lack of return that they've created. And there's also the, the, the willingness of China to show the region that they, uh, they can be a constructive partner and they're not gonna be, you know, uh, a hurdle in finding a sustainable solution for the people of Venezuela and for the region, because as we know, this is a crisis that has, you know, uh, surpassed the borders of Venezuela into the neighboring countries, not only neighboring countries, but into many regional countries. Mm -hmm. Russia also has lent a lot of money to Venezuela and yes. have come out much more in support of Maduro, very fervent. Um, yes. And then also, you know, I think that a lot of the support that Russia has given it's through Rosneft. So it's been a financial relationship. I don't, I don't think that we can, I mean, of course it has enjoyed the support of both states and Russia's foreign policy, but the, it has primarily been a business, uh, uh, a business first relationship. And I think that again, as in the case with China, and we've seen it since the US imposed uh, the oil sanctions, Russian companies, uh, look oil is not willing to uh, jeopardize their relationship with the U.S. only on Venezuela. So I think that, you know, with these two superpowers, we may see some pragmatism because they're not, uh, they're they aware of the regional stand, they're aware of the, of the many, many attempts that the Maduro administration has taken at trying to correct the economy. And they are aware that more than ever he is less unlikely to successfully turn the country around without having the support of the U.S., without having the support of Europe, and of course without having the support of the majority of the population in Venezuela. So I think that those are the equations that they're, they're just trying to figure out how, how can a transition be, be done peacefully. Mm -hmm. So whose support, you think, if they came out in this next week in support of Guaido, whose support would be the most critical or then the flip side, the most devastating for Maduro if he lost them? I think the Chinese, I mean, I think also uh, the Japanese uh, have been a little bit unclear, but I mean, they both said that they're willing to work with all sectors of the, all, all sides, I guess, of the political sides. And I think, yeah, I think it would be interesting to see stronger messages from China. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised though, if we, if we see them because Time is running out, money needs to be paid, 
you know, this is a crisis that is not, the, the, the inflation hasn't stopped, the oil production hasn't stopped decreasing. So uh, their time is of essence for many of the Venezuelan uh, partners. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, with that urgency, there's a sense of even if things stay the status quo right now, that is an increasingly perilous situation for Venezuelans. The more things stay as they are, right? Because right now is the crisis. Yes, yeah, exactly. I agree. So, and in terms of the timeline, I know that so there are new U.S. sanctions that uh, will severely restrict um, Venezuela's oil. And there are some reports that Venezuela only has about seven more days. Yes. So what is your take on that? Well, yeah, we have to remember that despite Venezuela being a a producer of oil, we, uh, Venezuela, needs um, refining more lighter oil and refining products to refine their own oil in order to to, to have gasoline and and diesel. So the Venezuela's f- uh, fuel supply is highly highly dependent on the on on the on the products that it imports mostly from the U.S. to refine its oil. So that is a situation that will worsen and that will escalate the crisis. Remember that distribution. I mean the. This is a distribution that's needed for food. This is, a, you know, like any economy, fuel is needed to keep whatever economic activity is happening. So we will see a, bigger contra- a faster and bigger contraction, uh, and we will see uh, probably larger shortages due to the fact that there won't be any fuel supply in, in addition to power shortages. So mm-hmm. it, I think that that has an imp- will have an, uh, an impact very soon. Do you think that will, this will be kind of the next critical point? Like, what happens if in a week Maduro is still in power and the oil runs out? I, I think that that would provide, I mean, more uh, impetus or more traction to any sort of possible, uh, to, to, to Maduro and his team to really come to a table. I mean, I think that they're un, unwilling to come to a table because they know that what the other side will ask, and it's free and fair elections, and I don't think that it will be hard for them having ha- having the support of the EU of the region for the opposition to suddenly back down from the for, you know from that ask. So uh, you know Maduro is reluctant to come to the table, uh, but if the situation continues to uh, to 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 worsen, which I think will, I think there he's going to face a lot of internal pressure, uh, especially from those that are keeping him in power, who are the generals and. Mm-hmm. And so on that issue of coming to the table, let's let's talk about dialogue, which can be a sort of yeah. exhausting topic for Venezuelans and people who have been following it. But because um, dialogue in a general sense, normal in normal terms, that would be a, a preferable option. Um, it's a good time to come, talk, try and resolve differences. Why is that such, I think at this point, a frustrating suggestion? For yeah, Venezuelan? that's a great question. And I think that that's, uh, it's important to take every opportunity to explain why the opposition is reluctant to participate. Because back in 2017, right, they participated in a dialogue in the Dominican Republic, a dialogue that was I guess sponsor or overseen by the Vatican, uh, the, it had some sort of the blessing of the U.S. of the EU. So it had really serious partners uh, involved Mexico, and yet the Maduro regime was able to uh, fool everyone in a way that they seemed convinced. I mean, and willing to do the things, and then when 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 it was time to implement whatever they had agreed on the table, they wouldn't do it. So. 
And I mean, a classic example is Maduro would say, they, the request from the opposition would be, we would like these political prisoners released. And yes. so Maduro regime would um, release some prisoners, and then they would turn around and arrest different people. Right, the famous rotating door uh, that you know civil mm -hmm. society people who are working in politi with political prisoners always tell you about. So Yeah, which would be a textbook case of how to enter into negotiations in bad faith. Exactly, exactly. So that's why they have earned this reputation of not being trustable negotiators. And, and this is why it's not only the opposition, but it's also, again, the regional group, the Lima group saying that we cannot participate in a fruitless dialogue. I think that it's clear that any sort of dialogue that happens that involves the opposition and its, uh, I guess, international allies will have to start with the three, uh, with, with, the prem with Maduro, exiting power uh, in order for the tr a transitional government to call for free and fair elections. Yeah, because I mean that's the basic assessment of that, of the dialogue, is that dialogue at this point, I think the Lima group actually said attempts for dialogue have been manipulated by the Maduro regime. And so dialogue at this point, it's not a neutral territory, it's a, it's a situation that actually benefits the Maduro regime because it keeps them in power longer and it prolongs the crisis that the Venezuelan people are suffering right now. And they're there's no need for them anyway because everybody knows what we already need to do, which is hold elections. Yes. You mentioned Mexico um, having participated in the dialogue a couple years ago, and I think it's important to point out because when you look at the whole region, Mexico's absence feels notable, but they have a particular history that explains that. The context would be that Mexico, since the 1930s, has yeah. had this policy, the Estrada Doctrine, which is specifically a principle of non-interventionism, yes. not having a willingness at all to interfere in other countries' affairs, and this principle of sovereignty. And that was the principle for decades for Mexico. And it was, in the previous administration, it was a new thing that they were involved in Venezuela. But since uh, December 1st, there's a new administration, and they have since pulled back. Yes. And and which is, again, partly it's in line with this history that they have, but then also at the same time, if you're a Venezuelan leader, this is clearly the moment of need, and to have someone who has been working with you then pull back. Yeah, that exactly. I think that you, you just said that very well, and it, it just, they, they haven't, you know, they, they, they switched their minds, and they participated in that dialogue before the one in the Dominican Republic that I mentioned in 2017. So they were there, and they witnessed how, you know, the, the, the Maduro regime wasn't able to, wasn't willing to implement whatever was agreed upon the table. I, I think Mexico is trying to stay uh, flexible and, you know, outside of, of this. As you know, Maduro was invited to the uh, inauguration of uh, López Obrador in a moment where he was already isolated by the international community. So, but the reality is that I don't think that the opposition and, 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 and the, the portion of the population that they represent, we'll see as Mexico as a trustable negotiator. So here we are in early February, things are very much in flux, but basically it seems like there, we have three possible options. And one, the first, and the one that everybody is hoping for is that Maduro steps down on his own, that he recognizes he is completely backed into a corner, he has nowhere else to go, and he leaves. And then Guaido can, fully step in with the backing of the military and and hold these new elections yes that's the most you know uh desirable um transition that i think everyone who's been following venezuela would like to see uh they i i don't, I don't some people find it unlikely i don't you know i i want to see what the conversations in uruguay this week 
uh, as we know, the European Union is going to be in Uruguay in meetings that I believe the government is also going to be represented at the Maduro government. So I, I think that with the consensus, again, that Europe showed yesterday supporting President Guaido with, with the unity of the opposition, I think that that's a, a very strong negotiating uh, point of departure for the opposition and, and, and its international allies. So we may be surprised on the ability for Maduro to understand that his future looks out of how his future looks and that if he further if he decides to stay in power will become will increase the chances of violence. That may be a scenario that he wants maybe to show that he's actually against uh, what they would call an imperialistic oppression and intervention. But I doubt that the generals and uh, senior officials of his cabinet and of Chavismo, because Chavismo you know, still exists as a guiding force in, in, in Madurismo and, and in, in Venezuelan politics, uh, I, I think that there will not be an appetite for that kind of confrontation from many people in Maduro's inner circle. So, especially with the you know the dire situation of the economy, and especially with the popular support that we have seen for a transition. So, it would be a very unpopular, I guess, road of action. But you know, this is what dictators have done in the past, and and you know, it's definitely an option that we cannot rule out. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it, it bears repeating too, like there's a, talking about, you know, will the military support Maduro or Guaido, the military has a very particular history in Venezuela with politics. Sometimes it has come on the side of the people and ousted a president, and sometimes it's gone the other way and it's supported a president and repressed the people. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that second option of the military, let's say, taking over the, the conduction of the transition and saying, okay, Maduro, uh, you're out, but we're in charge of this. I think given the exposure that Venezuela has and needs in order to, to, to secure financing, to be able to provide uh, basic services, and I'm talking about sales of oil to the US, I'm talking about a, a good relationship with China, I think that those were going to be uh, leverage points that the international community is going to have if on the military if they decide to own their transition. So the military may decide to own the transition, but they're not going to be willing to really uh, take the country in an economic path when you have the region, when you have the, your, bigger trade, your biggest trading partners, and when you have China and Russia really wanting to be paid back their money that they have invested. So I can see that option, but I can see also how that option doesn't pan out in a way of really transforming the country into what people really want. They just want, you know, to to be able to for afford a certain basic goods, be able to eat three times a day, be able to, you know, save some money and not have to deal with this hyperinflation and have to migrate as we've seen in the past. So I, I can see that scenario, but I can also see how the scenario doesn't really hold on. Yeah, because it'd be one thing if, you know, for Maduro to have this kind of cognitive dissonance and kind of denying what's happening, it'd be another thing for the entire military to kind of keep that up. Yeah. Because um, I think, you know, they want to get back to normal, too. And yeah. it can be very conflicting if you're a military person and you, like, order to not know who you're supposed to be following. 
right. at a given time. So best case scenario is if Maduro steps down on his own. The second would be if the military has to step in and kind of institute a transition. And then um, the third scenario that everybody keeps talking about, well, I should say observers like to talk about, but the diplomats involved have been very, very reluctant is obviously then foreign intervention. I think any sort of foreign intervention uh, will not, you know, I don't know who would be leading that foreign intervention. Of course, people point to the U.S. because, but I think that we have not really exhausted the diplomatic channels. I think that, you know, China and Russia, again, I mean, especially China doesn't want to be, oh, billions of dollars by a country now that is being inter intervened. So I think that China can pull the rock kind of from Maduro and the military because they have that ability, given the amount of money that they've invested and the ties that they have and, 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 the, and their role in the oil sector. So I, I, I like to believe that before the intervention happens, there may be more diplomatic channels that can be Uh, use, especially having uh, Europe, which has now, you know, many different types of governments uh, and also the region. So, you know, there could be really, uh, uh, let's say, a, a broad table discussion to avoid that, because uh, it's not that you have, you know, right wing governments against left wing governments. As I said, you have Spain, you have Canada. So they can really be... Um, I think that the world, because we're talking literally now about the world, can come together and avoid that intervention or aggression. Mm -hmm. That's my hope. Yeah. I mean, and again, it, I mean, as a Venezuelan, what does it feel like for you? I mean, the countries like foreign intervention in Latin America doesn't have a good history, especially from the U.S. So, I mean, what's as a Venezuelan, what is that like for you to hear new talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I just want to know that, let, let people know that I'm not a Venezuelan living in Venezuela, but I do have a lot of family. I have a lot of contacts. I... Uh, you know, I, I still am very connected and people are not thinking about the history of U.S. intervention. People are not thinking about what many of us are thinking. They are thinking, how can we go back to normal? I can only afford barely, you know, two eggs or if so, I cannot afford my kids' school. I cannot afford my cell phone. I, if I have a disease, there's no way can I can find an antibiotic. So. We can talk about history. I'm not saying that I'm pro an intervention, but I'm saying like the minds of Venezuelans right now are on a daily, you know, survival basis. And that's what the international community also needs to understand. Obviously, their life will be worse if there's an intervention for a while and they're going to get worse with the sanctions. And, and, and as, if the uncertainty continues, it's going to get worse. But people really just want to end this period of misery that, you know, the majority of the Venezuelans have been submitted to, uh, that have been, you know, living in, as you know, nine out of 10 Venezuelans is in poverty. Many of the, the majority of the population has to skip many uh, meals a day. And, you know, a salary, as you know, dissipates quickly because of hyperinflation and you can barely afford, I think it is something like two eggs with a minimum wage, so. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea too that even if, if nothing happens right now, the situation is going to get exponentially worse because yes. already you have close to 3,000 Venezuelans who have left in the last few years and then the UN Two estimates million. that in, uh, I think 2018-2019, it could be a whole other Two yeah. million, so yes. we'd be up to five million. So we're talking left. about 10% of the population, and as we've said before, 
you know, the countries receiving the bulk of this, the, the countries receiving the bulk of these migrants are countries of lower and middle income uh, per capita. I mean, uh, I also follow Ecuador and Colombia and Peru for my work, and I'm just, uh, you know, people are concerned about the, the fiscal deficits that Peru and Colombia have and, and, and having to receive unhealthy, poor migrants into your countries, your health systems take a toll. So it's really without, I mean, this is without even mentioning the security uh, risk and, and ties that, uh, for example, the ELN in Colombia that has been actively recruiting Venezuelan in, uh, around the border. So there are really a lot of, uh, from a financial point of view, uh, pressures and to the neighboring countries who have taken the bulk of these migrants that have left Venezuelans. Yeah, I believe uh, Colombian President Ivan Duque estimated that Colombia would spend over a billion dollars um, right. receiving these Venezuelan migrants. And really, I think Colombia should really be commended for how much they have kept their doors open Absolutely. and gone to great lengths Absolutely. to provide these services. We're grateful for that, and 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 you know we will not forget that they've been so receiving during these hard times because we know that. You know, Colombia is not, you know, perfect on its, you know, its economy is not perfect. So it's been very generous to see. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of Colombians express that sentiment that when Colombia was going through, um, you know, its violent years, that Venezuela received so many Colombians and that this is returning the favor historically. I mean, I grew up in Venezuela, so you know, and, 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 uh, and the, the composition of the of the society that I was part of. I mean, it was there was people from Ecuador, people from Peru, people from Haiti, people from the Dominican Republic. It was really hard to go through your day without meeting or seeing, interacting with someone who uh, who wasn't from uh, Venezuela. So it's it's nice to definitely you know hear that from Colombians. Yeah, that it really is a moment of regional solidarity. Yes, it really so. is. So let's talk now right now about um, aid because there's a big effort. The Maduro regime up until now denies there's a crisis, has rejected all international aid as people are starving, dying. So while the kind of political machinations work themselves out, what is happening on the international aid front? Well, the, the government of, or you know, the, the team of interim President Guaido, uh, many of them are in exile because they've been victims of political oppression before. So, for example, there is National Congressman, uh, Assembly Member Jose Manuel Olivares, who has been a leader in doing a census that the government wouldn't do of the state of hospitals, the most important uh, health needs and nutritional needs. So they have... In, uh, in coordination with the US, Canada, and other donors set up, uh, I guess, a strategy to bring humanitarian aid to the borders. As we know, many of the people who are fleeing the country are doing it because they are in a dire health situation like diabetes, HIV, or something where you really need a medication to survive. So the idea is to station some aid on the border, I mean, people have talked about an intervention through aid, but that's not what's going to happen. What they want is to pose the aid and really make it up to the militaries to say, no, I don't want it, even though behind them there's going to be an ocean of people wanting to have those nutritional supplements, mm -hmm. people to want to have access to those antibiotics, etc. So I think that, uh, yes, I mean, some people have warned against the risk of putting aid this way, but at the same time, this has been one of the, one of the promises, one of the goals of, of the opposition since the humanitarian crisis started, is 
opening a humanitarian channel that can be led into the country. And this has also been one of the, uh, you know, biggest, uh, I guess, flaws or criminal positions that the Maduro regime has taken of saying, you know, we don't need to be beggars when people are dying of preventable diseases at an unprecedented rate. So and begging in the streets and uh, digging through trash for their daily meals. So. If you go right now in the Simon Bolivar Bridge in between Cucuta and... In and, Colombia. And, yeah, it, the, the Simon Bolivar Bridge in, that leads to Cucuta, you find women selling their hair and men and, and the boys, the Maduro Bridge, I mean, I think it was under Chavez or Maduro, they gave a, a computers to every public school kid and they were called Canaimas, like the national park in the south. So now you find kids selling their computers and women selling their hair because the, the, the need is so much of just ha, you know, accessing some money to eat, to survive, to be able to travel to, a, to another part of the, the region that, where they may be able to find some jobs. So, uh, or it's going to be, I guess, interesting to see how if you put aid there and then you know, the military being a wall between a, a increasing number of people who need that aid and then you know it's so. all going to be literally in front of the soldiers faces so, yes and i thought that was interesting at the lima group um at their meeting they made two in their declaration that they released on monday they made two specific appeals to the military and the first was to recognize guado as interim president and commander-in-chief and then their second was to allow the international aid into venezuela yeah. through the borders exactly and and i mean and again that's telling this is the region that is Dealing with this crisis is a region that these are the countries that are having to spend more money on their hospitals because they're receiving Venezuelans with diseases that had been priorly eradicated, like malaria, tuberculosis, etc. So measles. So it, you know, we I I, I want to re-emphasize that given that this is a humanitarian crisis, the region has you know a lot to say about you know what how to deal with this crisis, and they have somehow I mean they have recently uh, they have come out in support of this humanitarian aid strategy that... Mm -hmm. that and I, I do think it's interesting, I mean, it might seem like a small thing or maybe not, but to literally just leave the aid on the border, it is a way too of really respecting the sovereignty of Venezuela's borders. Yeah. And saying, if this is going to come in, this needs to be, you know, the Venezuelan military has to allow it, the Venezuelan people, you know, will receive it. Yeah, yeah. There's some concerns about, you know, the military stealing the aid and politicizes it, but uh, again, I, I think that we are in certain ways past, the, past those times. I think that the state of, of the nation is in critical health. And, you know, I like to believe that there may be some scenarios that we haven't seen yet of, of, of you know, people coming together and really being able to take advantage of the humanitarian aid. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the we already know that the military heavily traffics the food that comes into the country, yes. but it, with medical supplies in particular, if you're a soldier, there's not much you can do with insulin if nobody yeah. in your family has diabetes. Right, 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 so, right. Yeah. Yes. Um, not as many incentives, so. And it's important to, know, to, to show that, I mean, to highlight that this aid will not solve the country's problems. I mean, you talk to a humanitarian experts and they tell you that the biggest threat is a, is a hyperinflation, that the biggest threats of why the country is in this place is price controls, is, uh, you know, the, the constant years of going after food producers. So the, this is not a country that, that where, you know, the threats are a natural disaster or a war, but actually has been, you know, 
mismanagement, uh, corruption of the economy that have created this this humanitarian um, crisis. So this aid may be important, but again, the country was not going to really turn around until there is a, a change in the economic policy. And that's not going to happen until the executive and, you know, until investors, until people perceive that there is a stability, a political stability, which, you know, at this point, Maduro cannot guarantee. Yeah, there's the immediate work of kind of stemming the crisis. Yes. And then there's the long term work of the rebuilding. Yeah. So and on that long term note, we should say, too, that this weekend, um, Canada pledged uh, was 53 million dollars yeah. to the recovery of Venezuela. I think that's an incredible, I mean, amount, uh, an incredible number. I think this very generous of Canada. I think that, you know, that uh, shows that these countries are really committed. They're not, not just committed to to, to following some sort of ideological, no, they're really committed in, in helping Venezuela recover. And, and they're aware these governments know firsthand because they are, they've been following this crisis and they're talking to the experts that the crisis is serious. This is not a media creation, this is real. I mean, there's a, humani there's a country where its people are facing a humanitarian emergency and there's a region that is willing and able to help. So. Um, I think I am sort of not shocked, but uh, I'm, I'm a little bit pleasantly surprised by the generosity of the Canadian people and its government. And I do hope that that aid can be used as efficient as possible because it's very much needed. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so I think that's about as much as we can wrap, cram into this one episode. Um, I'm sure there will be more to come. So just in the next few days, though, I mean, on your radar, besides this oil running out in about a week, what else do you have on your radar? Well, uh, I think yesterday we saw one of the co-coup leaders with Chavez, uh, February 4th, celebrated the 27th anniversary of when Hugo Chavez gave a coup in Venezuela to a constitutional elected uh, president. And I thought it was telling that one of his lieutenants who led the coup with him was saying, we should come to the table, we should negotiate with dignity. So you're seeing, you, you're uh, seeing, as I said, I don't know about the generals because that's really a dark box that many, very, very few people have access to. But you do see the Chavista architects, the revolutionary architects of this, I mean, the, the leaders of this revolution changing their mind and understanding that it's really going to be really hard to, you know, fight against this unity that there is between the international community, the the opposition and the people that are very certain that the next step has to be a free and fair elections. All right. And that is what we will be waiting and watching for. So, well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank and you so uh, much for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karen Zissis. This podcast was produced by Luisa Lemmy. For more, visit our Venezuela Working Group at as-coa.org slash VWG. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. For upcoming concerts, visit musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please subscribe and write a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Thank you.